Well, well, thank you very much indeed. It's um, quite normal at moments like this to say how delighted you are to be able to come and address a group. I'm afraid that when one has just literally run across the road and is intruding into another person's event, when one hasn't been able to feel the rhyme and the rhythm of what has gone before, um, it's a little bit of, of, a, of, of a trauma in some senses. Um, but uh, I'll do my best to try to uh, fit in with what I hope are, are your expectations of uh, this, this time this afternoon. And if not, well, I won't speak for too long and then perhaps you'll be able to ask me some questions and perhaps lead me to what you wanted me to hear from me um, du during the, the questions and, 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 and discussion area. As um, was said in the introduction, I am a public international lawyer, and I really do work in, I suppose, two discrete areas, which... Um, come together uh, in this overall um, area of, uh, should we say, peace building and peacemaking in a number of different ways. Um, the two areas in which I work particularly these days are those of torture and torture prevention, and that is something I will say a little bit more about substantively a little later, but I've also spent much of my life doing work on international protection of religious liberty. Um, and so, in a sense, my interests are to, to sum it up, torture and religion. And one does have to be a little careful about how those two things get juxtaposed in presentations. Indeed, I was once introduced um, at, for, for one purpose, someone, instead of someone who specialised in torture, prevention and religious liberty, I was said, this is Malcolm Evans, he does torture preventing religious liberty. <laughs> That wasn't so good. Um, but I'm also um, an academic international um, lawyer as, as, as well, so I do the full range of, shall we say, thinking around issues of, of, of international law as best one, one can. And so I approach both torture, torture prevention, and religious liberty through that lens, through the lens of international law. And I suppose what, I, what I'm hoping to do in the few minutes this afternoon is to share a number of reflections which I hope have a bearing on the theme uh, base today from my perspective as an international lawyer. And I suppose I will, to let you know where we're going, it's really structures in three different um, ways. First of all, I want to say something about what under an overall title, I suppose, of the burden of expectations. And this relates to perhaps what people may think about what my discipline, international law, and indeed human rights and international human rights protection, can contribute to the enterprise of peacemaking, peace building, peace construction, cultures of peace. And then, perhaps after possibly depressing you somewhat in what I'm saying, move perhaps to a more positive note to finish by drawing on what I do see as some new emergent areas of engagement around some of these themes, and particularly around the human rights themes, based on some of my personal and practical experiences as chair of the United Nations Subcommittee for Torture Prevention. And the focus I put in that on the word prevention is not without significance, as you will say, as you will see earlier. I will admit at the outset that I'm traumatised when I hear that this is being podcast because um, in many ways some of the things I'm about to say are absolutely not orthodoxy in that sense about what we are expected to think about both international law and international human rights. Um, but nevertheless, it's currently what I seem to think. Um, 
The burdens of expectation, well, to the international lawyer, to the public international lawyer, the words peace, peacekeeping, peacemaking, peace building, are words which increasingly must be understood to be fraught with danger. We tend to see and assume that these are the aims of the in international society. Uh, we see it in the United Nations Charter and elsewhere that one of the goals of the international community is this striving for peace and security. Nevertheless, each of these words, peace, peacekeeping, making, building, have a history of euphemistic usage and abusage about them so as to make them particularly troublesome, I have to say, from the perspective of international law and international lawyers, to the extent that one wonders whether the articulation of goals constantly through these terms in my particular arena um, is as, um, as helpful to the enterprise that one is seeking to achieve as is so often assumed. For example, um, you know, it has long been understood that many have generated Kant and beyond projects for perpetual peace, etc., etc. But you don't need me to tell you that so many of the so-called projects for perpetual peace, when translated over into political practice, have simply manifested themselves as projects of a hegemonic intent. Um, if one is simply spending one's time um, looking at many of the debates and discussions around um, the uh, development of international law and the ideals of international communitarianism, certainly during the 50s, 60s and 70s, one of the most often used phrases is that of peace-loving states. Um, and one has only got to state the expression to remind us of what we understand this to be a cover and a euphemism for. Um, not not uh, you know, quite frequently, those who most proclaim themselves to be peace-loving states have done so as a means of erecting barriers to external scrutiny in some of the most vicious and egregious regimes um, that have inhabited the international arena in, 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 in previous times and indeed current times as well. The idea of peace is often seen as a shield to legitimate scrutiny. And then when we move on to uh, the United Nations Charter, what again do we find? That one of the foundational notions is the maintaining, maintenance, maintaining of international peace and security. Um, indeed, this is so, and I'm the last person to in any sense denigrate the work of the United Nations. I do not. However, um, we must also recognize that in the doing of this role, the United Nations as an international organization is also serving the interests of a particular type of international community, that of an interstate-structured international community, which in the eyes of many is able to deliver neither peace nor security, but indeed the maintenance of a particular system and a particular status quo. Indeed, the very idea of threats to international peace and security within the UN Charter act as a trigger mechanism for the unleashing of the use of force. Within the architecture of the United Nations, it is only if the Security Council determine that there is going to be a threat to international peace and security that it is competent to make binding decisions under the UN Charter that can involve the authorization of the use of force against others. And lest one think this is merely the preserve of the, um, of, of the Security Council itself, many years ago, in the early years of the United Nations, the General Assembly itself 
itself, um, tried to arrogate a similar power to itself uh, to authorise the use of, of force against others and did so under the rubric of the Uniting for Peace resolution. One could go on and on and on, but what it's perfectly, you know, the, the, one can see where I'm going, getting to, that the idea in many of the international and internationalist circles, within which I suppose I increasingly work and operate, the idea of, shall we say, peace as an outcome may carry other connotations. Indeed, it's hardly surprising that we see this then build on from an international lawyer's point of view. You know, possibly one of the most innovative and beneficial uh, pieces of, should we say, constructive thinking in the international community has been the development of peacekeeping and the role of peacekeeping and peacekeeping forces crafted out of lacuna within the UN Charter. Nevertheless, again in recent times, the emphasis has been on peacekeeping has been supplemented by emphases on peacemaking, peacebuilding, as particular terms of art within the international community, which again have come to be understood as being euphemis, uh, euphemisms in many circles for little more than intervention in the affairs of other states. Um, and so to the extent that, one that there is a recoil from the use of these terms in some political circles, the aims may be as they were, but the modalities, the language and the methods by which this comes to pass uh, is increasingly turning. And of course we have all been there, seen this, experienced this before in the guise of discussions over um, uh, humanitarian intervention and so on. All I want to say, I suppose, is that in an international environment which has rejected in many ways concepts, which I know others have been and will be discussing, of things such as the just war or indeed the legitimacy of the use of force as a means of settling disputes between, between states, in a way, the only thing left which justifies the use of force in the international arena, paradoxically, has become the idea of peace. International law has therefore been, has always been used to a division between laws of war and laws of peace. If you look back to the very origins of international law, um, Grotius and all the others were writing their books on the laws of war and the laws of peace, normally in three books, were that it were so simple. But at least we understood where we were. There was war and there was peace. But now, Peace is becoming the new law of war. And this, I think, has some profound implications for the way in which international lawyers at least can engage with the subject and how others interested in developing movements of peace indeed engage with international law. There is a great danger that the language of each can talk past each number. The point then is that for international lawyers, peace is not an easy concept to work with. We are expected to be at the heart of its delivery, and yet the connotations of the concept can in many ways be seen as increasingly negative or standing as an increasing um, um, difficulty in the realisation of the very objects they are meant to achieve. Now, if this is so as regards uh, the interface of law with peace, I would say it is increasingly so also with another area in which there is an enormous burden of expectation, and that is the interface with human rights. The infrastructure of international human rights protection, certainly in recent times, has, has grown exponentially. The reality, I would argue, of human rights delivery has not. 
Now, for some, for many people, the problem is that the, the infrastructure has simply not grown enough. There is some truth in this that we need more international mechanisms, we need more focus on the delivery and realisation of human rights through, through the development of international norms, means and mechanisms and so on. But I think this also misses a, a very important, indeed essential issue, which is, as with the idea of peace, far too much has been invested in the idea of what international law as a discipline and as a discourse Indeed, one could say law in general, not just international law. Too much has been invested in, what, in the idea of what, they can, what can actually be achieved through legal systems and legal structures in the way of human rights um, delivery. You know, the international community, despite what it says, does not really protect human rights as such. What does it do? It may set standards, it may make declarations, it may create normative structures in which states and increasingly individuals can be held to, their, to account when they are not acting in accordance with their international obligations. And this is all, in its own way, very good, very right and very proper. However, human rights actually are protected not so much through these means and mechanisms, but they are protected where they are experienced. And they're experienced in the day-to-day -day reality of the lives of those living in particular places, under particular regimes, in particular situations. And it is the experience in those situations which needs to be changed. It is the experience in these situations which must be the focus of attention. But increasingly, human rights has become identified too much with human rights law, with legal remedies and with legal processes, as if the turn to law provides the answer to the human rights needs of those striving and struggling within the international arena. To give you, um, um, I suppose, a, an, an anecdote for a moment, around about this time last year, I was at a, um, a, a fairly a fairly high-level meeting that had been convened at rather short notice around the theme against the title... What was the title? Against the title, What Can We Do About the Human Rights Situation in Libya? Now, this was at a time when um, the f future of Misrata was under close attack from the forces of Gaddafi. The future of Libya um, was by no means certain in terms of what the trajectory of that conflict was going to be. And very laudably, a group were called together to think, what are we going to do about the human rights situation in Libya? What struck me about that meeting was that most of the contributions and most of the discussions were focusing on questions such as which courts can be established to hold the perpetrators of abuse to account? How are we going to train the per people to go in and be able to take effective witness statements? How do we go about garnering and collecting the appropriate evidence to be able to ensure that those responsible can be put on trial? What about the question of either diplomatic in in immunities or immunities before domestic courts? All very important questions until I did ask, what has any of this got to do about the human rights situation in Libya? I was looked at as if I was a bit of an idiot. And 
quite possibly I was. But the point I wanted to get over is if what you were trying to do through your engagement with human rights is achieving outcomes for those who are suffering human rights abuses, there are a much broader means of achieving those outcomes than simply the turn to law and the use of legal remedial procedures. Almost by definition, the use of classic legal rights language is all about remedying wrongs. And perhaps we ought to be thinking less in terms of remedy in the wrongs that have occurred and more in terms of what law and indeed other disciplines can do to enhance the likelihood that wrongs do not happen in the first place. And that is something where I, I think that there does need to be a change in, in focus and a change of emphasis. Law may be necessary but it is certainly not sufficient. Doubtless it's the rights word that does it. Light, rights are a legal concept. Yet what many are seeking to achieve through the medium of human rights are probably best not always thought of in terms of rights at all. Once again, the, the burden of expectation is probably more than the concept can bear. And as an international lawyer working, and I will say working practically in this area, I'm becoming increasingly and acutely conscious of this. So, why do I say that? And... This turns to my third and final point, where I just want to outline a little of my personal experience working in this area over the last um, few, few years. In the field of certainly international human rights protection, law, international law, is better at providing frameworks for engagement than it is for providing solutions to practical problems. You know, international law in general, um, um, forgive me international lawyers, is not, um, is not very hot on actual remedies for things which have happened. Focusing on the elaboration of mechanisms that cannot deliver change or are ill-suited to deliver change does not necessarily seem to me the most productive activity. Change happens locally. International solutions are not better than national ones, and this is another problem that seems to have emerged in recent times. The view that if you want to solve a problem in a country, be it of human rights, be it of development, be it of anything, somehow turning to the international community is a better way of bringing it about than to trying to generate that response through national, national routes. Quite frankly, international pressure is almost, may, al may almost always, not always, but may almost always be beneficial, but if it's international pressure, it's domestic solutions, which are what we have to look for, living in a world which remains structured as the way it is. If that's the case and change happens locally and international solutions are not to be preferred over national ones, um, then we need to look about how we go about perhaps responding to human rights issues in a different way than what we have done before. Perhaps I may also add that in some ways international solutions can be worse than no solutions at all because quite often they appear what they are, too distant, too remote, too abstract and in some practical situations just plain wrong for the situation that they are actually meant to be addressing. So. Human rights implementation into the future may have to take a different turn, another turn. And I suppose I'm conscious of this because I've been drawn into the rather arcane world of, of um, acronyms, the OPCAT. 
The OPCAT stands for the Optional Protocol to the UN Convention Against Torture. I will not bore you with the details, too much of it, but what it does is radically different from just about every other international human rights instrument. Rather than um, permitting the international community to scrutinise in the abstract the record of states based on reports, or indeed receiving complaints from individuals or states about the behaviour of each other, it actually authorises an international committee, of which I am currently chair, to visit any place in any country which is a party to the system at short or no notice and go to any place where persons are detained, deprived of their liberty. And so we can, and we do, decide we are going to country X, we are not telling them we are going there, and when we go there, we are going into their prisons, into their police stations, into their interrogation centres, and seeing precisely what's going on. And having seen what precisely what's going on, what do we do? Well, we could sit back and make a report. Well, we do sit back and make a report. But our reports are different, and this, again, cuts across orthodoxy. Our reports are completely confidential, unless the state wishes to make them public. We say what needs to be done, in our view, in a private setting to the state involved, with the idea of trying to gain its cooperation in order to make things better. It's all about, I stressed, stressed earlier on, the prevention word. It's not about holding states to account. It's not about holding individuals to account. That is an important task, but it is for others to do. Our role is to go in to find out what the day-to-day -day reality of the enjoyment of rights is, to get alongside both those who are suffering from an abuse of rights and those who are in a position of responsibility and authority in relation to them, in order to find out and make real practical suggestions about what actually can be done and what really should be done, not at an abstract level, but at a very concrete, practical level. So if you go into a place of detention and you see disgusting, filthy conditions, the recommendation is not likely to be build a new prison, which is unlikely to happen, but it may be some very technical, practical things about how best to go to clear it up. Um, I remember getting into quite a lot of trouble on, after in one visit when talking to some authorities when they say, yes, they do not understand human rights. They do not understand human rights. We need money for training courses for our staff on human rights. To which I said, no, you don't need to train them on human rights. You need to train them in how to use a bucket and a mop. Such are the things that can actually make a real difference to real people suffering real abuse in real time. This isn't a replacement for what goes on elsewhere or for other top-level means of international engagement and addressing of situations, but it does show that if you are going to be able to address the core problems which those suffering um, suffering human rights abuses are facing, and all those things that um, cut against the building of the cultures and structures and that we wish to see in peaceful, well-ordered, civilised societies, then we do need to think about engaging alongside those who may find themselves often unwittingly in a position where they are perpetuating the things that we need to challenge. And a culture, and a legalistic culture, um, in which the way in which this is done is through challenge and adjudication is simply not the way to do it. 
getting alongside people, finding out what the real issues on a day-to-day -day basis of those who are, who are detained are, what the living realities for those trying to run systems are, who are also often as cha seriously challenged in their capacity to do better, and to broker and try to press for real solutions in a situation that can have a real outcome. This is a new way of trying to proceed. And in conclusion, I should say this not only involves the construction of international mechanisms, but the establishment of such mechanisms at national level too. And that is hugely important, because it means that increasingly we are seeing it's not just the job of others to address this from the outside, but the only way in which you can build these cultures is by working with people on the inside both within institutions themselves but within a state to set up their own mechanisms to be able to do this on an ongoing basis. There's, um, it can be messy, it means the outcomes may lack standardisation, there may be no uniformity. This is a great challenge to people like me whose great human rights rhetoric over many years has been universality, etc, etc. At one level, yes, but in terms of what can be done, then quite often this challenges this. Um, what works is going to depend on history, on culture, on practice, on politics, etc, etc. It's all about thinking practically in a concrete situation. I've learned over the years it's far easier to say the right things than it is to say the things that are going to make a difference. And that, I think, is, a, is, 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 is often a challenge for all of us. So, to me, it seems quite obvious that international law and international human rights law, at one level obviously contributes to the attainment of peace through peace building and are indeed, to use the title of this, 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 this conversation, disciplines of peace. Of course they are, or they can be and should be. But with just about, as with just about everything else, it's not so much the discipline, but the manner in which the discipline is brought to bear on the condition con concerned that really, really matters. And we have to think about those in different terms if we are going to make, I think, the abstract areas in which people like me so often work, international law, human rights, more meaningful and more relevant. So, in conclusion, one could say the entire product of my academic work over 20, 25 years on how to prevent torture is probably little, is about as banal as that. But at another, I think it throws the entire received approaches on how law relates to human rights protection in some ways into turmoil. And it's absolutely, because it's absolutely not what it tends to do. Thank you.